dialed in to Talking Into Infinity, a Dream Theater podcast. Follow the show on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube for schedules of live upcoming broadcasts where you can be a part of the show. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Talking Into Infinity. I am your host, John. With me is my very good friend and co-host, Brian. What is going on, man? Man, we got an awesome, awesome show tonight with an awesome guest who's going to give us some serious insight into what it's like touring with one of the greatest bands in the world. Several of the greatest bands in the world. You should see this guy's resume, man. Uh, That's true. That's very true. So. Uh, we did we did kind of tease this on our social media, but uh, his name is Bill Fertig, and he's actually his career goes back to 1983 from what he uh, provided to us, and um, he actually knows things we do not. So <laughs> it'll be very educational to learn how a tour actually works and whatnot. So uh, why don't we bring him on, uh, Bill? Welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on and joining us, man. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. Not a problem. Not a problem. So. Uh, well, I mean, let's let's just really let's just jump into this. I mean, you you sent over, you know, your your resume, and I mean, there there are so many big names on this. You know, I mean, the Jacksons, Anita Baker, Bad Company, Ringo Starr. I mean, all these. And you look down at the very bottom. The very first thing you have listed is Metallica, nineteen eighty three <laughs> and eighty four. So, you know, I mean, how does that start there? Yeah, how, how 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 did you get into sound, and how do, how was it Metallica was the first one? So, well, um, so I played in bands in high school, uh, and then I gravitated to because I was like the only guy who had an interest in the sound. I gravitated to working for friends' bands, um, and I uh, when I played in some bands there in high school, there was this one kind of big band uh in the area and i uh, made friends with the bass player and uh they were a great band and i said if you ever need a guitar player i'd love <laughs> to be in that band and, and um oddly enough the, the guitar player in that band at the time was brian sesser and this was brian playing zeppelin covers and things like that and a monster player, even that uh, he must have been, I don't know, early 20s or something like that. Wow. But he eventually left this band because he played in about uh, 10 bands at that time. And he kind of went full time with this, I think, with this kind of punk band, Bloodless Pharaohs. So I played in some club bands and then I um, started uh, working four other bands and I worked joined uh, a sound company uh, answered uh, an ad in a paper and went in uh, this guy had a little sound company out of his uh, garage and uh, then it was me and he at the time and <laughs> so we did local bands in the area and uh, there was this guy um, Johnny Z who at the time owned uh, you know a record company or not record company, a uh, uh, record shop store. Yeah. Um, and he was putting together a tour. And it was for this band Raven. Uh, and he came to uh, Leon, the owner of this company, says, you know, can you provide a guy and some gear for it? And uh, the guy was me. And so um, <laughs> showed up. The tour started uh, in the East Coast uh, in New Jersey. And... Um, 
and Metallica was the support act. And mind you, I mean, they were very young uh, at the time <laughs> and, uh, you know, barely maybe young enough to be in a bar. Yeah. <laughs> and that's where these were. So and we traveled across the country, ended up in San Francisco where they headlined uh, in that show. Um, and uh, they were enormous. It was amazing the the crowd response. So at that time, I mean, they didn't have a record out. How they promoted themselves was through, you know, magazines like Kerrang, right? Uh, sure. And uh, and they sold a cassette of their, a couple of tunes, uh, and that's how they promoted themselves. Uh, now, was that the, was that the No Life to Leather demo at that point, or was it actually stuff that they had done for Kill Em All? Yeah. <sighs> You know what? I, I am not sure uh, how that, uh, what that was, but mm -hmm. uh, that was, you know, how they reached uh, audiences, and they they got a lot of press, you know, and people came out in droves to see them, uh, and you know, Raven, who was quite their senior, uh, they were really gracious to them, and uh, yeah, uh, and so. We had a um, like a twenty four foot uh, box truck and a Winnebago, <laughs> and the state of this thing was limping into San Francisco. By the time I got there, right. it was not in good shape. I, I don't know who returned it, <laughs> but I'm sure they had to pay some money uh, out of pocket on that. Right, right. So that was. That was, uh, you know, that was my, uh, you know, intro to touring, essentially, one of. And then from there, I um, began to work. Uh, I joined a company called C-Factor, which was, at the time was a huge lighting company. They did a lot of big acts, one of which was, um, was Rush. And so they decided they were going to start a sound division. Um, and I was one of a couple of people who came aboard at that time. And Rush had a different sound company at the time. And they, the sound engineers wanted at the time new equipment, uh, a different type of equipment than the sound company that was providing it had. So C Factor said, You tell us what you want, we'll provide it if you give us the account. And that's what happened. So <clears throat> they, uh, we built this huge Meyer sound system with these uh, Midas consoles. Um, and that was uh, the beginning of, you know, of Rush at the time. Uh, and that for me was pretty incredible. You know, <laughs> being, I grew up playing drums and, and, and uh, playing guitar and, you know, taking the needle <clears throat> on a Rush record and moving it back and trying to learn the licks, you know, yeah. <laughs> that's what you did. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Right. So this was, you know, if there was, if I ever was a fan, that was, that was me at that time. Yeah. And I, I was lucky enough. So I wasn't their sound engineer at the time, but I was, uh, at the time, uh, Neil had a tech and he had his, his tech had his own console. So he mixed Neil's monitors for him, uh, but he wasn't very tech savvy. He was a drum tech, you know? Mm -hmm. So I was, I was the, tech person for him um wow and, 
and which was kind of cool because uh, Neil would do a lot of uh, drum clinics and things, and I would go with the uh, <clears throat> with Larry and Neil to these uh, things and just you know watch the monster player that he is and was. Uh, yeah, and, and that was just amazing. Wow. Uh, so we yeah it was it was pretty cool. So working you know working at sound company worked for a lot of bands. If you are you know you are sound company a sound guy and you work for a sound company, a lot of times tours will hire you and then they will say, okay, can you provide the the engineers? And so you are by default on there as a mixer. Then okay. it gets to a point that bands then maybe want to pay directly and hire this, you know, people uh, independent of their where they get their equipment from. Um, and so there was a time that I, during working at C Factor, I worked uh, different acts, uh, Bad Company and Lou Reed, and ended up kind of gravitating with them when they moved on to different. Uh, sound companies or mostly because they ended up playing outside the U.S. And uh, C-Factor didn't have any equipment other than what was in the U.S. Okay. Actually, a couple couple people have a question for you. So yeah. some because of the Metallica 8384 thing, um, so uh, my buddy Josh wants to know, was he running sound for Metallica when their gear was stolen? <laughs> No, no, uh, uh, the, it, it, that wasn't, that happened after that, I believe. Yeah, it was like right before Ride the Lightning, I'm pretty sure, because I remember yeah. the stories of them running around trying to find that stuff. Right, for the, no, they, for the, it was, it wasn't, yeah. uh, they were safely, you know, by the grace of God, the truck and Winnebago made it to San Francisco, <laughs> but in the end it was nice, it had a, you know, a little barbecue, they all lived in this, this house, you know, in this little suburban right. neighborhood, and, uh. And that's where they rehearsed. And, that's uh, awesome. And I, you know, that was, there was quite a few years after that point that before the records came out. Mm -hmm. um, and it was years later, actually, while I was on uh, a rush tour that they came because they were, they were, uh, they shared some same uh, relationships and lighting designer and, and such. Um, and they came, and so I, uh, that was the first time I had seen them since since that time. <laughs> sure. Interesting. Right. So our buddy Kale, who is uh, all the way in Australia, he says, yeah. uh, so, so did you seek tertiary education in sound, or were you self-taught? There was no formal education. Right now, you can, you can go to schools like Full Sail, and there's a lot of schools that will teach you different uh you know how to be a live sound mixer or how to be a studio engineer those things really didn't exist there was i did i grew up in long island i um did take a uh course in in new york city in a, a recording studio kind of program um and i also uh went to uh trade shows the audio aes audio engineering society shows um, and they meet a lot of fantastic people in the audio business. And so I kind of got geeky into the, into the audio thing, uh, that way, but yeah, there was not, and it, it is all self-taught and, and it's 
still needs to be, but you can go get some formal education, you know, in a way shorter mm -hmm. period of time, and you can just learn it. Yeah. Uh, and then it's a matter of, you know, uh, perfecting your craft. Um, so, uh, but there are a lot of opportunities now and, and, and good ones. Yeah. So, so Bill, I just want to clarify this. You went from working with Raven to working indirectly with Rush. Are there, are there too many guys in the world that can actually make that statement? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a guy who wore a hockey. I know you had a, the drummers wore a hockey mask on stage, right? Wacko. Right. Yeah. 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 Right. I, I had the couple of their albums. Back. Yeah. Right. I had the stay hard album. I had, um, I was back for the, something about the pack. Right. I had that one, but I remember that tour specifically came through. I'm, I'm sure you probably don't remember this came through St. Louis. I did not go. It was at an, under uh like an all ages club it was called right. reflections right i lived in the st louis area at the time and i, I was like ah, i really want to go to this i want and i didn't go and to this day like now i'm just completely kicking myself because <laughs> hey i would i would have seen you there right i would have yes, got to see right. metallica in 1983 <laughs> which you know would have been absolutely amazing but i did have a question so being through this many eras of like just recording technology and sound technology what's like just name just one thing where you're like oh my gosh these you know, these guys coming up have it so much easier now because back in those days we had to do this or whatever to get, <laughs> you know, just a drum sound or guitar, just anything, you know, other than obviously Pro Tools makes it easier. But like this, well, name like the one thing. Well, I don't know that. So, OK, in terms of things easier, right. the advancements in, in, in sound systems mm -hmm. has been huge in the last 20 years. You know, years or so, enormous. I mean, oh, you even see, you, okay. You remember, you used to see, you know, stacks of big square four foot right. four foot speakers. They plastered. You couldn't see anything but speakers really on the stage. That's true. Now you go into their uh, arenas and you see these long lines, these line array speakers, which were uh, invented and perfected by a Frenchman uh, from a company called L Acoustics, and it essentially revolutionized. The industry. I mean, it it cut down the number of trucks that was necessary. It made the sound way more coherent. So that is a that is a benefit that was not there then. I mean, I mean, I guess our memory is a little foggy if we go back to the eighties or something. What we remember, but <laughs> right. the basic thing you remember is that you couldn't make heads or tails out of the sound in an arena. Right? It was just. It was an event that you were there, but now it's you can, you know, sit in nosebleed seats and, and hear and understand what's going on. So that is a great thing that has happened. Um, but uh, so for younger kids, now everything is computer controlled and kids grow up and they understand things like networks and stuff like that. And you will live or die by that. Now it's it's necessary. There are some older guys that don't go there to the digital world, and they stay in that. Uh, um, so it's a challenge as you get older to <laughs> to you know backwards learn all this. Um, and so that's a you know that's a plus that uh, you know for your younger engineers they got they wrap their heads around uh, computers and they can understand what's going on much easier so what uh, what is like 
technically speaking, what is the difference with you know you said like the you know the the inline stuff like what what right. what did what exactly did that do you know for like for well, people that aren't very tech savvy <laughs> so if you have a bunch of sound sources and they're spread apart especially in the horizontal field mm-hmm. when you move between them they can't there's cancellations that happen those line arrays essentially have one point in the horizontal field right Oh yeah, okay. that the sound is emanating from. So when you yeah. move left to right, the sound does not change at all. That's enormous. And, and when it changes in the other format, the sound you lose level, and the sound ends up what they call lobing. Instead of going straight out, it doesn't just disappear. It ends up going out <laughs> to the ceiling or something. Yeah. Um, energy doesn't just go away, but it moves somewhere else. Uh, the new line arrays, it directs the energy onto the audience, away from the ceiling, <clears throat> so it's not so reverberant. Yep. Um, it is leaps and bounds over what was uh, going on yeah. earlier. Yep. So, I mean, it is a dream theater show, so, well, you know, uh, you, yeah, <laughs> you do have on here. Um, now, was this the last to- like tour that you did before you actually started doing like the Blossom and stuff like that? Is, it was dream right. theater? Well, it was kind of concurrent when I took that. So I've got uh, three kids that are uh, college and high school age. And I didn't, you know, it's going to be soon enough. They're going to not be at home. So <coughs> I wanted to not tour in the summertime. Yeah. And so this opportunity came along. Live Nation was looking for somebody to be, you know, audio department head there. And also it's Blossom's owned by the Cleveland Orchestra. So there's kind of two roles there. Yeah. Um, and so I took that and figured, well, now I'll just tour outside of that area a little bit. And um, then I got a call one day from, I had some friends who had toured with Dream Theater, tech guys, mm-hmm. um, for quite a long time. And we'd talk, we were on other tours. And so I heard that, uh, you know, there's stories of Dream Theater and, and, one day they called me up and said, hey, our guy is has to leave and we're looking for somebody. And it was, you know, in the fall, I guess, or near it was the end of Blossom Summer. So I said, yeah, OK. And um, I mean, I knew of the band um, and and most importantly, I, I knew of the musicianship. And that is something uh, that. You know, it's quite important to me. And so that I was quite stoked to, to be able to do that. Uh, and so that's kind of how that came about. So when you when you show up at the your very first show at Dream Theater, they already have like their own guy that travels with them and says, here's the song order. This is kind of stuff we want to look out for. And does he kind of preset things for you? as to how they want a mix or, or is that kind of just all up to you and you sort of dive dive in and go, go with what the players want? Yeah. No, I I sat down with uh, John Jordan and and James and and had conversations about it, um, about, you know, how they like to hear audio. So, and then in the end, it's kind of, you do what you do it's kind of hard to, to make people do what they don't do naturally, but you, you can, you know, take comments and criticism, but 
everybody has their own, you know, sound mixing is kind of an artistic uh, thing and uh, just like playing and that um, everybody does things a little differently, you know. But yeah, they were very, very involved uh, in it and, and they were super nice people, you know, they're... <laughs> There's no pretentiousness going on. Yeah. They are, you know, they're not rock stars. They, they are just great players, great people. Um, so it was, that part of it was so wonderful. So what, I mean, I, I guess that kind of asks the question, like how were they different in any other ways besides just not being like pretentious douchebags like some bands can be? Because <laughs> <laughs> you hear all those horror stories, you know? Right. And, so, I mean, like, was there anything else about them that really set them apart from a, you know, a quote unquote normal band on the road? Well, I think if they didn't have their success, they all individually will still, were, would have still been, had, you know, been players and, and, mm -hmm. and you know, to hone their craft. Uh, so that I think was the important thing to them. Not necessarily. I mean, the band is the, is the outlet to do what you like to do. But I think individually their musicianship is what is ultimately important to them. I think so. That's what I take away from that where other bands, the band is the important thing and not, yeah. you know, not their craft uh, yeah. in, in some places. But uh, so that was, that was my takeaway from them. Right. They, that was, you know, number one most important thing have you ever seen any other musicians that wear like john myung where his hangout all day is just a little like tent on the side of the stage like that was <laughs> I, I when i read that i couldn't believe it i mean is that has does that ever happen with anybody else or is that completely unique to him <laughs> he's a unique person but he is a. Uh... He's he's amazing. He's not, you know, he's like he's a shy person, kind of. But yeah, really quiet. You know, he's a badass golfer. You know, he'll be the guy to get up in the morning. You know, usually rock stars. You know, really? players you play and you're you know uh -oh. you're going to sleep at four in the morning. He'll get up <laughs> and, and go, you know, do something. So um, he is unassuming, I would say, right? Uh, and you know, and as well. He just you provided know. John another avenue to stalk John Myung now. John's an avid golfer too. I love golf. Like, I'm like, hey, All right. what's the nearest course to the tour there at this this time? Right. right. Yeah. <laughs> Man, that's yeah, awesome. there were a few guys on the on the on the crew that golf and, and played very well. And he'd be right in there, you know. I'm wow. up, I'm up. You tell me when you're leaving. No no time too early. Uh, so, <laughs> that's great. Yeah, yeah. So all right, so so you were with them for you know sixteen and seventeen. Um, obviously, that you know you, you you told us off air that you started like kind of in the middle of the astonishing tour. Right. That was a very unique presentation, being that it was kind of like a like it was very theatrical, and they had you know all the stage stuff. Um, did it present any different challenges for you and the crew, or was it really just set all the stuff up on stage and then you just do what you do? Um, no, well, there were, you know, technical things, the video stuff and, and the sync to the video, you know, when you're going to start, when you're going to stop, yeah. is it running to time code, uh, 
So it, it was elaborate, and that was quite an undertaking for them, especially then to do that in theaters. Whoa, pretty costly. <laughs> yeah, you know that that's that's not uh, that's not something that comes without a price. So they again trying to do the best they can do, you know, for their fans, see that whole vision of that uh, record, you know, come to life. Um, uh, that was a, that was a, you know, I think a great undertaking, you know, for them. Well, there, there's so much orchestration on that album too. That's, that's, you know, like you said, is already on a digital file, I guess, you know, Jordan right. plays a tremendous amount of keyboards and covers a lot of his parts, but those parts, I believe, are just about in every song, nonstop in the background. So, right, like, right. If one thing gets off, was there ever a time during like a sound check or or a show where you're like, uh oh, something's like off a half second? Or um, luckily, I, mean, I don't think I don't think uh, <clears throat> in the show. Well, I mean, the, the to to play in sync with something like that, you're playing to click track. So there's some right, right. something in your right. you're listening to to keep them in time. So right. Um, um, so there's potential for disaster, right? Yeah, I mean, that's I, I didn't it's, ever, it's, I didn't remember anything, any train wrecks. Uh, yeah, you know, I just, I mean, as great as those guys are, it's probably not going to happen. But I mean, yeah, again, right, yeah. you're talking two and a half hours of, you know, you've got to be right, right on with it, you know, and you've got to be on right. to yourself, right? So. Right. <laughs> and some of it, they couldn't just, you know, do a song, take a break. It's like that computer is telling you, you're going, you're going, <laughs> yeah. right? So, uh, uh, yeah, great. You know, a great effort that was. I think. So, did they did they have any special requirements outside of the norm? You know, was it you know something where you know they we got to have it this way where most bands have it that way? Like, any did they have anything like that, or was it? I don't think so. Like I said, I thought they were so easygoing, down to earth. You know, they wanted to. Um, do the best job they could. They wanted to always have meet and greets and, and get to meet the band. One interesting thing that they did, so not only could you, you know, have a meet and greet and see the band and talk with them, get your picture taken, you can also do a tech tour, tech meet and greet. So oh, really? Yeah. So um I don't remember if it was on both tours, but so the, their individual techs, Maddie, their guitar tech, and the the other techs would then kids mostly it was you know parents taking their sixteen year old <laughs> who was who plays great guitar you know wants to see this and uh, quite a cool opportunity and to allow that to happen I don't I've never seen that before no. and it is an amazing insight you know you just if you were a sixteen year old kid. It, got to see one of your idols that's one thing but then you got to get up on stage and put your foot on his effects pedal or or you know that is something incredible so so they took everybody backstage and like showed them all like the well not not backstage it, it was uh well on, on, you know, so it was like on stage yeah. and whatnot so like, a select okay. group of people who were you know um who uh, wanted to, you know, make this happen. I, I don't know how it was all arranged, uh, mm -hmm. but then, you know, there was you know, a handful, maybe six to 12 people sometimes, and they just go from station to station, go to John's bass rig and yeah. <laughs> Mike's drum kit, and, and the tech would give a little speech and tell them about it, and the kids ask questions. Um, but that's awesome, you know, that is... 
really serving your fan. I think. Yeah. So when when they first approach you about this, you you know, like like John said, you're doing this massive double concept album. Do you have to sit down and listen to the CD for a couple of days so you All right and like yeah. just really kind of? I mean, obviously you're not going to probably learn every note, you know, in in a day or two. But do you really just sit down and and just kind of just over and over, just sort of plow it into your brain? This is what I'm going to be doing, or yeah, it's kind of necessary. Um, to mix a band well is to know the material pretty well because otherwise if there is some cue to turn up a guitar solo or something like that if you don't know that it's happening and don't you have to put it in the right place before it happens right otherwise it's very evident oh it just gradually gets louder right (laughs) right that's a sign of somebody you know not paying attention to or don't know the material so the the really (laughs) the people who do a great job they know the material and so that was a lot of material to sit and absorb and so i spent you know better part of the three weeks maybe between getting the call and and showing up it was this we i began when we started a leg so um I came in and there were some rehearsals um, and another great um, advance in sound and digital world is that you can come with a console, record the band like multi-track when they play and they leave, then you can play it back on consoles and and sit there and practice mixing. So... um, that has been a workflow of digital consoles for the last maybe 10 years now. And it's a great, you know, advantage, uh, help uh, engineers. Really and just, and just to, cl- to clarify, you had never, you'd, you'd heard of the band, but if a song came on the radio, you, you wouldn't know it's Dream Theater or you wouldn't? No, no. Well, you don't get too much radio airplay unless you know. Well, where, where you, right. what station? I mean, if you have some good say, stations, that's you know, a, yeah. a badly phrased question, but you know what I'm saying. Like, <laughs> no, I know. I, you, no, I didn't. Like, were I you didn't familiar huge, with? Huge, were you familiar with like three songs, two, five? Yeah, or, yeah, like a, roughly, a like pull, pull me under or something. Right, right. The okay. things that were uh, big and and uh, I think when I toured with uh, one of the techs who who I knew on the tour. On another tour, I think um, he played Images and Words, uh, you know, on the bus so one night. So I heard a lot, a lot of that, and uh, um, so that yeah, I didn't have a, a huge history in it, but um, but you sit and learn it, and that's that is your job to to be able to sing the music essentially, you know, and, and then that way you can. Uh, uh, you know, you would be able to know when cues are going to happen. So, I mean, again, the list of artists that you've worked with is very extensive, but stylistically, they're kind of all over the map. Right. And obviously, with, without without naming a name, obviously, um, have have you had an experience where you've had to run sound for somebody and really, you know, shed on this material? 
but you really don't like the material. <laughs> so you're kind of like forcing yourself to listen to stuff where you're like, oh, I hate this. <laughs> don't you talk about Barry Manilow, John. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to, I'm not going to, I'll hang up on this podcast right now if you say one bad word about Barry Manilow. Right. We, so we said here, no names, man. <laughs> so here's the thing about, um, you know, working with varied artists. How people in this, you know, business move from account to account is normally the there's a manager for a band and they hire a tour manager and a production manager. And those people hire uh, engineers, lighting guys, so and so, you know, such and such. So then when that person moves to a different artist, a lot of times they like to take the same people they know with them to that artist. So um just by default there you can you know move with different artists and 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 a lot of times that's how you gain new accounts is from other you know managers that you work with so um so yeah it does become pretty varied there are some guys who who stick with the genres of stuff um i did do a, a lot of stuff that was you know single uh, single pop star, you know, um, vocalist, um, and I dig that. And one of the, and and I think I had a had gathered a strength in that. So early on, when I was working the C Factor, we one of the acts that got was not music at all. It was comedy. It was uh, <clears throat> uh, was Eddie Murphy, and wow. so. What I learned about that <laughs> rather quickly was how to, in an arena, how to make the voice intelligible. Um, and at that time, there were some people who mixed sound for shows, and and maybe they didn't think that that was important in a rock show. But because of what I was doing, that was necessary. So I knew how to, you know, make a vocal um sound good and intelligible uh, in that kind of environment. Uh, so I ended up maybe, you know, being good at that and worked for individual singer artists. Um, and so that's kind of, um, you know, how the, the variedness of stuff, you know, yeah. what I did. So, I mean, it, now... I mean, obviously the Metallica stuff was more club stuff, and then and then you did you know little Steven. I mean, did you did you really just jump from like club level to arena level? Did you take that big of a leap, or was there at least a, was there a middle step in there for you to um, acclimate? Or well, I mean, at that time I I'd been working either you know playing in a club environment, mixing in a club environment. <clears throat> then into theaters. That whole transition was probably, uh, I don't know, five to 10 years. So I had a lot of chops, just never, um, you know, played in a big arena right. or toured in a lot of arenas. But one of the, actually, maybe the first arena thing I did was um, in New York, I worked for the, um, the band, the Plasmatics. Yeah. Mm -hmm. it, right. So, oh, yeah. And they, we were playing clubs, you know, in the New York area, um, and they were hired to do a Kiss tour. So that 
theoretically, I think that was probably the first arena tour that I did. And oddly enough, we we'd play in you know the Bible belts of the country, and, and <laughs> people were out there protesting against Kiss, and they had no yep. idea who Wendy O. Williams was. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah, and it was you know it was mayhem. <laughs> so there was there was a lot of interesting press, but uh, she was pretty wild. She was. Um, I mean, they were full on hardcore from, you know, they were one of the early adopters of pyro and actually the most yeah. famous pyro person in this biz industry came from working uh, uh, with the plasmatics were at that time. So we were probably, I don't know. 20 or so like that he's cutting up cars and blowing them up on a stage <laughs> <laughs> for real i mean this is like real uh not pretend stuff this is yeah. really happening and she would take a uh, she'd have a guitar that she'd put on a stand and take a chainsaw and really cut through this guitar in a in a club or a small theater and people are grabbing for it thinking maybe yeah it's just a prop no, yeah. it's a real chainsaw. <laughs> the only thing is you couldn't hear it. We had to put a we had to put a mic on it, a contact pickup on it, because the band was so loud that even the sound of a chainsaw wasn't loud enough. Uh, <laughs> but that was crazy and very dangerous. Uh, I don't know if that would pass uh, OSHA standards. It's like the today. the shot the shotgun mic stand that Jesse James Dupree has with Jackal. <laughs> right, right, right. Oh my God! I, I quick story. I, I opened for them in a club, and I didn't know it was a real gun. And we're sitting there, and that was the loudest band I've ever heard in my life. Like they had arena sound in a club. I'm like, this is unnecessary. Right. Well, anyway, I'm talking to a friend, and I see him lift this thing like he's going to shoot. I'm like, oh look, he's fake shooting a gun. All of a sudden, it's boom, boom. I was like, "Wow!" Like, <laughs> damn, it blew my real. ears out. I was like, "What is going on here?" So, that was <laughs> that was right, something. right. I mean, yeah. we'd have to go. I have to go, and we put like uh, plywood in front of the speakers because the concussion would, would take them out a lot of times. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they didn't own it. These were like you know, little clubs, uh, right? Speakers. So they, I don't think they wanted to keep replacing them. <laughs> uh, so pretty, yeah. pretty interesting back then. So yeah, that was. That was the first arena uh, tour. Um, and uh, yeah, at that time, I remember Kiss was, they were dabbling with trying to, uh, trying to make a solution for their concussion mortars and use what is essentially something like what they would uh, put out in a cornfield, you know, to scare uh, birds away, you know. <laughs> right. And, and it was they could never get it loud enough, never get uh, you know <clears throat> anything comparable. And they spent half this tour trying to do something like that. <laughs> and in the end, they just have to put these uh, big, uh, you know, it's kind of like a firework in a concussion yeah. mortar. It's filled with gunpowder, and they mm -hmm. put it in a steel box, and they lift the box up with a forklift, so it's you know ten feet in the air. And let it off. And I mean, you can feel it everywhere. <laughs> right. <laughs> Is there, would there be a more fun job back then than the demolition crew for Kiss? Right, right. <laughs> just to figure out all the stuff that just how we're going to blow stuff up. Right. <laughs> yeah. so they were, uh, they went full tilt boogie with, uh, with the pyro <laughs> and stuff. 
uh, it definitely brought the show, I guess, at that time. But nobody so, was expecting Wendy O. Williams, so it didn't matter yeah. how much pyro. That was that was a, a scare to some people. <laughs> yeah, they're out there protesting Kiss, and so the guys at Kiss are probably like, "Oh man, boy, you need to aim your guns elsewhere." Just wait until you see the support. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so. So, I mean, obviously, you've been in the business for so long. Like, what is what is probably your craziest road story? Uh, that, you can t- that you can yeah. tell on the air. Yeah, definitely not. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, I don't know. Well, I, I don't know crazy road story or maybe craziest gig. So, um, I played some pretty cool places um, from, you know, playing a gig at the White House, uh, state dinner with the... Uh, with Lou Reed, and it was the day the Monica, Monica Lewinsky scandal came out. Really? Wow. Right. So here we are. We're setting up in the what is it, uh, East Room or something. It was a state dinner for the Czech uh, president, who was a fan. You know, when, when you are when you are um, uh, invited, you know, for a state dinner, they say, well, "What's your choice of entertainment?" And then we'll provide it for you. And he said, "Lou Reed." So wow, so <laughs> so Lou was the entertainment, and uh, uh, and like I said, it was a day we were outside, and you know, uh, on our phones after we set up, and and all this press stuff was going on, and then later when we went in um, for sound check, uh, Hillary came in and greeted us, and she had like a Cheshire cat smile on i think uh, <laughs> like she got him or something i don't know yeah she was very very cordial um but with all this going on so that was a pretty wild uh story or gig um one other one was so i um worked with for i don't know maybe half a dozen years this uh british girl katie mellowa she's like a nora jones of sure. uk right so mm-hmm. um and she's like a, an adventure nut. Uh, and she was contacted by this guy who was the manager of a gas rig in in the uh, uh, off the coast of Norway. And he had the idea that he wanted to do a Guinness Book of World Records deepest concert. So he hired her and she said, yeah, tell me when. <laughs> so we played a concert 300 meters below sea level uh, for a audience of about 10 uh, people, which were the people who were on the gas rig to manage it. Uh, and they filmed it and made a, there's a, like a, a film of it's like um, you know, deepest uh, a concert under the sea, I think it is, Katie Miller. Pretty amazing. So it, there was training. You had to, just like these people who worked out there, you had to have, uh, if you, because it's, it's open water, you take a chopper to get out there, and you have to have training. If you ditch the chopper, you have to be able to survive. So yeah, part of the filming, they filmed the band actually doing the, uh, they take them to a pool, and they have a chopper without props. They submerge, they, they invert it, submerge it in the water, and then you have to get your seatbelt off and swim out. 
Um, and so you never think you would just do a concert and have an experience yeah. like that. So uh, that that is a was a memorable uh, occasion. <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> Who comes up with an idea like that? That's I don't know crazy. what it was. We, yeah, I wow. got this book and uh, out of it and uh, presented with a plaque. And um, But uh, safety protocols are no joke. They yeah. get serious about what. So to do what they did was pretty incredible. You know, uh, you, you had to get checked out by a doctor. You had to get a, you had to leave your electronics. You couldn't walk around with a cell phone in this for fear of that. It could, you know, whatever, start a spark that would blow the thing up. Yeah. Um, and it was incredible. We did do, so the crew, the band did the the inverted chopper, uh, you know, uh, open water uh, thing. And we all had to get in the lifeboat. So what the lifeboat is, is like a submarine. It's enclosed. It, it holds, I think, about 16 people. You're sitting in like theater chairs, maybe three abreast by um i don't know six six deep and the the thing hangs 100 feet out of the water um on an angle um and you get in it and they close the door and they let it go and that thing flies and hits the water <laughs> goes into the water and comes up and submerges and that was crazy I mean, we live near Cedar Point, and there's some hairy rides. Yeah, there, that, <laughs> right. that was hairy. But that's all in the n- name of a gig. I mean, so man, uh, there are some there are some nutty people out there who got <laughs> some crazy ideas. But uh, that was memorable. Is there like wow. a small documentary or something out there? Because you said they were filming part yeah, of that. Yeah, no, there is. is. Is it on YouTube or somewhere we could find it? I want to see this now. Yeah, it sounds, you could. Yeah, it's, yeah, Katie Mello concert under the sea. Okay. Or uh, you can probably go to Guinness Book. I don't know if anybody did a deeper concert. Oh, we <laughs> they, have, have, they have concerts of high altitude, and this was yeah. the... So go, going back to Dream Theater for a bit here. So after you the Astonishing Tour, you did the, the Images and Words Tour where they did yeah. the anniversary show? Yeah. Um, now, recently they did a... Um, it was a pay-per-view um, from Budokan. Right, where, right. Did you mix that show? Yeah, yeah. Oh, awesome. I mean, not. I mean, that was multi-tracked, and so that was remixed. Um, but you were the, there after. live when it happened. Yeah. yeah okay. That, awesome. Yeah, wow. that was pretty cool. That was right in the beginning of the leg, uh, maybe the first two shows into it or something. Of okay. The, of the uh, <clears throat> Asian leg. Did you know at that time that they were going to end up using that as a video? Had they kind of talked about that then, or? Yeah. Well. Yeah. Because. Yeah, this was you know a twelve camera shoot. It was a big production, so yeah. If they didn't do it, that would yeah. be a, not a very good uh, you know. Uh, People holding up their cell phones. Hey, can you send that to <laughs> us? Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> but it costs a lot of money to do something like that, so I, I think they need, they needed to release it. Sure. It's just yeah. weird that it took so long for it to come out. Also, so when it's you obviously they go in and they kind of remix and and do all this and that. How are you involved in that process as at all or or not, once it's not, gone, it's out of your hands? A, not on that. I've no. had uh, involved in other records, live records before. Um, there's a Lou Reed record that uh, a live record that was just a board mix 
of uh, mine. Uh, so there are various, various ways that live sound engineers could be involved in a recording process. And now, um, because of the digital consoles, um, it's very easy to have a console, have a Mac. Uh, you don't even need an interface between it, and you can record high-definition multitrack audio for every show, and then bands can use that to, um, you know, make, make a live record. And that's there's a lot of that happening. I mean, in the in this case, there was um, a remote recording truck, uh, I believe that uh, that did that, and they also probably used uh, live tracks that they you know recorded off the consoles as well. So. Um, yeah, the, the lag in putting it out, I'm not sure. It's just, you know, well, they, they, uh, those guys like to be involved very well in it, not just hand it off to somebody. So I think that probably was the, the reason for taking a little bit of time. Had you worked at Budokan before? I mean, that's that's obviously that's an iconic room there. Uh, right. Cheap, Cheap Trick at Budokan, one of my all-time right, right. favorite albums recorded there. and. Um, had you ever played there before, or was that your first time? No, actually, I think that was the first time I ever did that. I, I played many tours in, in Japan, but um, mostly theater tours um, and or festival, uh, but that was. so, And that was cool. Yeah, I had the same thought about, you know, its history, and uh, so I was excited about it. And, uh, and the fans... A, a lot of you know the, the thought is Japanese fans are kind of reserved the audience, but I think when it comes to heavy rock or metal, they're not. <laughs> they really, really love it, uh, and it's their chance to you know get out of their. Um, uh, I don't know. Break out of their shell the somewhat. Right, right, right. Yeah. So, um, so that's cool. That was a, that was a great experience. So what what is the biggest what is the biggest venue you've ever had to run sound for? Um, well, I don't know I indoor indoor venues. You know, just uh, most arenas are all the same. Outdoor venues can you know can be a hundred thousand people, where an indoor venue is maybe capped at thirty or something. The largest one, so uh, that's hard to say. I don't know. Uh, but um, I don't in yeah I, apart from you know being a festival I think would be would be the largest uh, audience that I'd probably mix the show at. All right. Have Have you done any other places that like you know everybody knows like Budokan? Have you done any of the other like any really you know pretty world famous types of types Royal of Albert venues? Hall maybe. I mean that's a wow. Pretty, Big one in the UK, Did yeah. A few times with Lou. Um, maybe with that company, I'm not sure. Uh, but and then let's see. I don't know. Other famous Madison Square Garden. I mean, growing up yeah. in, New in New York, Madison Square Garden was a local gig for me. Yeah. Uh, so, not necessarily doing rock shows, but. Being the local, you know, sound company, we there do a lot of ethnic shows in there, um, but it is, you know, an iconic place and a place when I was young, go, you know, see concerts. Um, and had this, you know, a pretty special memory of being inside there. Awesome. So, 
Nick, you had kind of mentioned earlier, you know, we'll, you know, close up here pretty soon. Um, you had mentioned that you are now running sound here. Uh, you know, obviously we're based, at, you know, in the suburbs of Cleveland here. You said you're, you know, out around the Akron area. So you said you're, you're the, you're the sound director or the head of sound for uh, Blossom Music Center in the, in the Cleveland Orchestra, huh? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So I, I belong to um, uh, a uh, IOTC, which is a, like a labor union for uh, theatrical. And stagehands. So in that, they have a you know audio guys, audio department, and so I took uh, Live Nation was looking for somebody to staff that position, and I came aboard. You know, enabled me to stay home for the three months, three to four months in the summertime, um, and you know it's ten minutes from my house, and that's a great. It's a really great venue too. Yeah, uh, really nice. Uh, as you know, yeah, the place to see a concert. It's awesome. So I'm a huge Star Wars nerd. So did you get to do sound or, or work on when they played uh, <laughs> A New Hope or Empire Strikes Back? Did you right. work with those? Right. Uh, yeah, yeah. So they uh, they do uh, usually do a few movies a year uh, soundtracks, and uh, I don't know that they take that part of it very seriously, but. Certainly, Star Wars fans yeah. <laughs> take that very seriously. Uh, Guilty, <laughs> uh, right? Uh, and it's cool, you know, the, to to see uh, movie soundtracks played live. It's it's awesome. I think. Um, well, I, w- I would like to lodge an official complaint that you can take back to your superiors. Um, yeah. They did episode four and then episode five, and then they were supposed to do episode six, and they they did some stupid <laughs> Harry Potter movies. So you right. can tell them we, we we Star Wars nerds were not happy about that. We want Return of the Jedi live. So I want to go officially I'll, on record. I will send it to the top brass. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So unfortunately, uh, they're not doing any movies this season. You know they you know they're going to have a season, but uh, because of social distancing, that's when they really get a, a huge crowd the orchestra you know yeah uh, i i, I want to say bill that i i don't john's probably never experienced this without the movie but just going to blossom and seeing the cleveland orchestra just play whatever classical you know stuff that they're going to play does, doesn't matter from what era it is you know baroque romantic whatever it, right. it is an experience everybody has to do at least once oh, right, right you got to go sit on the lawn I mean, they've, I guess they've probably changed all. You used to be able to come in and bring in a giant cooler. I remember going with, with my wife and my brother and, her, and his wife. You get, you get these giant coolers full of wine and, and sandwiches and cheese and food. and sitting, I mean, and these are just the greatest musicians in the world up there right. in that yep. beautiful setting. So, like, I just urge anyone, if you ever get a chance to go to Blossom, see the Cleveland Orchestra. I'm not getting paid for this. I should. But <laughs> it, I mean, but Bill can attest to this. He's not just right. saying it either. It no, is an experience. Right. I mean, they are, if not the best in the top three orchestras, right, in the world. They, they are yep. world-renowned. Those are yep. amazing musicians. And uh, and to get this, you know, see, you still can bring food and drink for an orchestra event on the lawn. I don't think you can carry it into the pavilion. But most people sit in the lawn. And now with the large, uh, uh, you know, LED wall, they have video screens, and they uh, usually have a few cameras shoot, so you can, you know, see up close and personal where they were just like little tiny specks if you were up yeah. on the lawn. Now it's it's a uh, it's a much better experience, I think. Uh, it's it's really great, and yep. um, yeah, they are creme de la creme. 
So one last question for you. I mean, yeah. you, the, you've got a very unique perspective on this, having worked in the industry and you know behind the scenes and done all these crazy things. I mean, obviously the pandemic is something that the music industry has never seen before. Um, do you think that things will get back to the way they were? You know, do you think it's starting that way, or do you think it'll? It, it's just this is going to be. I hate the term, but the new normal. I mean, are we ever going to get to cram in, you know, you know, a holes to elbows and just right. rock out for a couple hours? You know, I mean, I think it has to happen, right? Because, well, uh, the, there, there's there's people that want to come and see concerts. So I, I think the advent of the vaccine will give people, you know, reassurance that they can come and do this. Um, it is, you know, it generates a huge amount of income. And currently, you know, there's people who had tickets uh, for now two years for shows that are meant to happen this summer. If yeah. they didn't happen, I suspect people will be very, very mad. That's uh, me and Sammy Hagar. Know, I, I yeah. had six row tickets for the Sammy Hagar show at Blossom. <laughs> right. So uh, no, I think it'll. I think it'll happen. Uh, and this summer, it'll happen later. Maybe the Blossom season and all the sh shed seasons will go a little into the cooler months, just so they can get in as many uh, rebookings of shows that were supposed to happen. Yeah, you know, uh, last year, um, but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty stoked about it. And having been a person that got his first vaccine, and I'm about to get my <laughs> second shot, so I'm <laughs> really looking hopeful, uh, ready to roll. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, we really appreciate you coming on, man. Is there anything yeah, that you would like pleasure. to promote? Any anything that you're working on, or anything you want to get out there? Or? No, go get your shot so we can go back to work. That's what I said. <laughs> <laughs> Beautiful. Well, yeah, like are, I say, right, there oh, are sorry. people that in this industry that really people who were, you know, self-employed people, they lost years of wages. And in the beginning, there was no government support. In the end, yeah. they did, but it took a long time. Yep. And um, so this you know thing about uh, vaccines uh it affects you know it affects business and uh and the concert industry was something that was not really looked at as a business albeit it was a huge revenue uh um you know it, it made an enormous amount of money but People were all freelance, and they did not have an outlet when this all came to a close. And nobody thought that this could ever happen. Uh, so, for all those people out there that had to, you know, <laughs> deal with this, upending their life, uh, yeah, go get your shot so uh, you can go back to concerts. Yeah, for sure. Well, like I say, uh, you know, thank you very much for coming on. This was oh, awesome. Thank you. thank you, thank you for the conversation. Thanks for the really cool stories. Um, Hopefully we can do it again sometime. And this this was a really great time. It was it was very enjoyable. Thanks for making time yeah, for us. Yeah, same here. I appreciate it. Appreciate the opportunity. It was nice to meet you both. Not a, I gotta, not a problem. I got to give a shout out to Brian Loxo. Without yeah, Brian, Brian Loxo, we would not have this. Uh, Brian Loxo is one of my 
dueling piano partners and one of the most incredible piano players you'll ever You're see. You're the other half reader. of that then. Oh, now I know. Well, I'm, I'm, actually, I'm actually the sub for that. So there's kind <laughs> well, of three, there three to four of us. But uh, yeah, I really appreciate Brian because I told him about Dream Theater and he's like, oh, I know the guy that runs sound for them. And you're just kind of thinking, no, you don't. Like, you, <laughs> yeah. know, you don't know the guy that runs sound for Dream Theater. How could you possibly know it? Like, it's so random like right but anyway i definitely appreciate it and bill yeah it's been an yeah, honor same, and uh awesome and hopefully we will see you at blossom at a show yeah come on down say hello I, <laughs> thank you i i'm saving up money for front row sammy hagar tickets it's my go. last big blowout so <laughs> so well, well thanks everybody for checking out another episode of talking into infinity don't forget you can download us on any number of audio platforms if you are not able to catch the live video stream so uh i am your host john for brian uh thanks once again bill and everybody we will catch you uh next time the next show will be in two weeks it'll be thursday april 22nd 7.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, and we will see you guys then. Hey, everyone. Thanks for checking out Talking Into Infinity, a Dream Theater podcast. Just wanted to remind you that we want you to be a part of the show. If you give us a like on Facebook or follow us on Twitter, at T-I-I-D-T podcast, we post the schedule of when we are recording the show live. It is a streaming video platform on our Facebook and YouTube pages, and it has a live chat feature where you can comment on the show, ask questions, and we can bring your remarks up on the screen and have you drive the conversation. So again, give us a like on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at T-I-I-D-T Podcast, and come hang out with us and be a part of the show. Thanks again, and carpe diem.